for providing us with the technology to draw us together from all corners of the world, really. We praise you, we thank you, we thank you that you are in the process of transforming our hearts and our minds, that you are revealing your heart, your thoughts to us through these words in your, the words in your word. Father, thank you that they are not just words, but they are infused with your very being. And so as we study them, as we meditate on them, as we listen to what you are saying to us through them, we are being slowly transformed to be like your son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you. We praise you for that. I do pray that you would have your hand on joy, uh, bless her, strengthen her, encourage joy in you. And we pray, Father, for uh, fruit for her ministry. Watch over her and protect her. May she find uh, joy in you as her name is. So, Lord, thank you for this day. We give you praise and thanks for it. Well, in the book of Romans, we are looking at a passage that for a lot of believers is a very difficult one. It's kind of an interesting passage. And I think we've laid a lot of groundwork in terms of Romans chapters 9 through 11. And just a few reminders concerning this passage. We're going to deal with an issue, the doctrine of election, which is a troubling doctrine for a lot of believers. And one of the things that seems to come out of it is it just doesn't seem fair. It just doesn't seem right that God would choose some. And what about the rest of them? And to compound that, we're going to look at a passage today that talks about the hardening of some, the hardening of Pharaoh in uh, verse 18. We didn't quite finish looking at it, so we'll go back and take a look at it. But we need to always keep in mind the context of any passage that we're studying. And to keep in mind, I've been mentioning throughout the book, this letter is written to believers. And I think that's very, very important. When we were in the early chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's describing the unbeliever. He's describing those that don't have righteousness, which is everyone except those in Christ. But he's not writing to bring people into a saving relationship. He's writing to equip the believer so that we can go out and share the gospel, so that we understand the nature of mankind in general and to realize that everyone has a need for salvation, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And we've seen that throughout. He's writing these for believers so that we can understand when we get to the portion of, or we got to the portion of sanctification so the believer knows how to live the Christian life. So also in chapters 9 through 11, I think he's writing to that same audience that was composed of both Jew and Gentile. But he's focusing on the Jewish aspect and explaining to both Jew and Gentile the new situation that has changed since the coming of Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ, and even the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a new era that we are living in, and immediately the Jewish audience, composed of believers that would have been living in the city of Rome, here's first century Rome that some of us visited, they would have had a lot of issues and a lot of questions. Well, 
what about all of the promises? What about everything that God has said in his word concerning Israel? And I think he's going to answer these questions in chapters 9 through 11. So we spent a lot of time talking about the provision of God's righteousness available to everyone, including the dogs that the Jews would describe, including the Gentiles. This is uh, very different from the Old Testament. The The Gentiles had to come through Israel. They had to proselytize. They had to accept the law. They had to accept the Old Testament. They had to believe on anything the Old Testament said, but it had to be through Israel. So what happened? How, Paul, now is this gospel available to the Gentiles? And simply on the basis of faith and not obedience to the law. So in chapters 9 through 11, he's vindicating God's righteousness in that God is free to at any time to introduce an expanded program, you might say, that would include not just Jews at the center of a program, but now Gentiles. And Gentiles, even on an equal basis, this is unheard of. So the Jewish believers that resided in the city of Rome need an explanation. And I think because it's inspired, the church throughout has needed an explanation concerning the new relationship between Messiah and his people, the Jewish people. So he's going to vindicate God's righteousness in the way that he's treating Israel at this stage in world history. And there are three parts. He's going to go back and trace the beginnings of Israel and introduce this idea of God sovereignly choosing some people over others, beginning with Abraham. Well, what about the rest of the people in the day of Abraham? Why does God select one individual by the name of Abraham and even within the descendants of Abraham? Well, first of all, God promises Abraham that he will produce through him a great nation. And then even through Abraham, we see that God made selections. He chooses Isaac rather than uh, Ishmael. So the line of promise is going to go through Isaac. And if that's not enough, it's not through Esau, but rather the line is through Jacob, who will later be named Israel. And God is sovereign in making these choices. And the issues stem from that. So he's going to explain that God also is sovereign to be able to choose others outside of the nation of Israel. And he's sovereign in choosing a modified plan, you might say, in terms of reaching the entire world. So the sovereignty of God is the emphasis and the idea of election of chapter 9, 1 through 29. And God is just as sovereign in disciplining his people, the Jewish people, because of their rejection of Messiah. So also God is sovereign in rejecting them for a period of time. So Israel is under discipline in the church age, but there's a false doctrine that also arose historically called replacement theology, and some have the idea that uh, the church has now replaced Israel. That is not only a tragic concept that has permeated church history and has been a problem within the church in terms of its relationship to Israel, 
but uh, they have misunderstood what God is saying in Romans 11 in that God is not finished with Israel. Israel is simply set aside, not totally rejected, but anticipates a future restoration. That's the idea of chapter 11. And that resurrection will include the salvation of all of Israel, is what Paul says. All as a nation or a national group, they will all realize that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, this will take place in the future after God is finished dealing with the church and the church age. So this will take place after the church age. Now, Romans 11 isn't entirely clear on that, but we have the rest of the New Testament that expands upon the eschatology after the church age. So he's going to answer some main issues here, issues relating to the gospel and the gospel going out to this hated group in the first century and even in the Old Testament, the Gentiles, who are the enemies of Israel throughout their history. And now the gospel is available to them by grace, and all they have to do is simply believe. What about Israel? Isn't Israel's God's chosen people? And don't the people of Israel have all of these promises and even covenants where God entered into covenant legal documents, legal arrangements? What about all of those promises? Well, that's going to be answered in these passages. And Gentiles can come to God apart from the law? That's unheard of if you're a Jew, particularly not only in the first century, but even a converted Jew. This was a major issue in the early church, the church's relationship to the law. In fact, we still struggle with that relationship. We were, before many of you signed on, uh, Steve and Barb and I were discussing an issue of that relationship of the law to this new economy, this new dispensation. So it had to be answered and We've already seen an answer given in chapters 1 through 8. So in chapters 9 through 11, we have expansion concerning that relationship, a radical change that God entered into. So these chapters deal primarily with Israel, and Paul is going to make a distinction, as I've been reviewing here, and we've already talked about all this, a distinction between national Israel, all Israel, beginning in verse 6, or more specifically, ethnic Israel. In other words, those that are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That would be ethnic Israel through the bloodline of Israel. There's a distinction between them and what we might identify as true Israel. He calls them the children of God in the following verses there. Children of the promise. The promise is the Abrahamic covenant that God made to Abraham. There's a within ethnic and national Israel, not every single one of them are regenerate. Not every single one of them would be part of true Israel. You see that through their history, but you also see that in the first century that he's addressing. And what he's saying is, even though there is a national group, a group of Israelites, the majority of them have rejected Messiah, Within them, which would be the disciples, the early church, there is a true Israel. In other words, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jewish people that have trusted in the Messiah. 
They are children of God and they are the children of the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not dealing with the church. That's another misinterpretation of these passages. He doesn't even deal with Gentiles until we get to the passage that is in the paragraph, and it's at the very last verse of the paragraph that we're going to begin today, beginning in verse 19. He doesn't even mention, he's not dealing with Gentiles until he gets to verse 24, and then he's going to explain that relationship between Jew and Gentile. And basically his conclusion concerning what he's saying in terms of God's choice, God's choice or God's election includes Gentiles during the church age. So that's a quick review. So the focus, we're developing these principles concerning God's election. Now we're talking about Israel. So some of these are not applicable in terms of individuals. Some of these are not applicable in terms of the church age believers. But he's talking about Israel in chapters 9 through 11. And he's looking at Israel somewhat corporately, at least the ethnic aspect. So one of the things that we saw is God's choice, even of descendants of Abraham, is not based solely on physical or natural descent. So Ishmael is passed over. Esau is passed over. It's through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that's not applicable in terms of the choosing in terms of church age believers because it includes those outside of Israel. Another principle that we saw, it's part of God's sovereign purpose. And in verse 11, we have the strongest statement in almost all of scripture concerning God's purposes and God's choices. In fact, the words go together, God's sovereign elective purpose in verse 11, where we have one of the words that is translated relating to the doctrine of election. So we expanded upon that when we were at that point. Thirdly, it's not dependent on man's works. Now, I think that's a principle that's applicable in terms of church age. And we saw that emphasized not only in verse 11, but then again in verse 16. And it's also rooted in God's grace and in God's love. We saw that in 13 and then again in verse 16. So that brings us to the passage that we're looking at. We're looking at the vindications of God's righteousness. I've got in outline form rather than in chart form here, the outline, the vindication of God's righteousness, the large paragraph that we're still in or subdivision, chapters 9, almost the whole chapter, all the way to verse 29. Paul introduces the whole passage, expressing his sorrow concerning his fellow Jews, his fellow, his brethren within Judaism. He's not talking about brothers in Christ. He's talking about brothers within Judaism. He is sorrowful for them because they have rejected Messiah and they're missing out on what Messiah has for them. First five verses. And then he's going to vindicate God's word. So that's why I have the theme of vindication throughout this. He raises the question and then answers it. It's not as if the word of God has failed. The word of God referring to the Abrahamic promises, it has not failed. God hasn't abandoned what he has committed. And he's going to explain that in verses 6 through 13. And that raises the issue of this seems unfair. This seems like 
the justice of God needs discussion. So beginning in verse 14 through 18, we looked at that passage last time. He raises the issue of God's justice, verse 14, and then he gives an example or a biblical basis for the idea that God is not unjust in selecting some and passing over others. And we spent most of our time looking at a passage in the book of Exodus where God reveals himself to Moses after the incident of the golden calf, where God tells Moses, basically he's testing Moses to see if Moses has understood the word of God, the revelation of God, the character of God. And Moses responds by basically asking for forgiveness on behalf of the nation. But God has said, that he will wipe them out, and he's perfectly just. God has no obligation to the nation of Israel because they have violated the covenant. They are subject to his judgment, and had he chosen, he could have wiped them totally out. In fact, that's what he proposes to Moses. So the fact that God in grace and in his mercy in the passage, it tells us, that he will show mercy upon whom he shows mercy and compassion on whom he will show compassion. He's not obligated in any way to show any mercy or any compassion, but what is deserved is true justice, and justice means the destruction of the nation of Israel. And God even proposes an idea. Now, it's something that God would not follow through, but it's more of a test of Moses. He says that I can produce another nation through you, Moses. But that would go against some of the other revelation. But the point being is God would be perfectly just to essentially destroy all of Israel and start over if he so chose or or even close the whole thing down if he so chose. So he gives that word to Moses. And that brings us to some other principles The doctrine of election does not violate God's justice. You have to understand the ramifications of God's justice in order to understand this doctrine of election. And that's the the thrust of verses 14 through 18. And it does not violate man's volition. God allows man to make choices. And in fact, man is held responsible for all of his choices. And we're going to have an expansion of that in the passage that we're going to look at after we get past uh, verse 18 today. So it does not violate man's volition. And then seventh is not dependent on anything in man. That's stressed once again, much like the third principle there. It's not dependent on man's works, but it's not dependent on anything in man. I think that's the thrust of verse 16. So it reiterates a similar concept that we've already seen. So that brings us to the passage where we left off last time, the word to Pharaoh, 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. Now, remember, Pharaoh is the arch enemy of Israel at that time frame. He's the dominant figure in the Egyptian empire. He was worshipped as a god. Remember, we looked at some of that last time. And the scriptures tell us that God raised Pharaoh up. Very strong language. And it introduces a problem at the end there in verse 18 that we'll look at in a moment. But God 
has a purpose that even involves an unbeliever. And we have insight here into God using the unbeliever to accomplish certain purposes. We looked at two of those. He raised up purpose to demonstrate his power. We saw that the plagues and the exodus itself display the power of God, not only to the Egyptians, but uh, to the nation of Israel. That's not even a nation yet. They're simply the beginnings of them as a nation. It demonstrates that the gods of the Egyptians have no power and that the one that has all of the power and the omnipotent one is the God that is bringing Israel out. So it's demonstrated in Pharaoh and before the entire Egyptian empire. And secondly, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And I gave you an example from the book of Joshua where there's evidence that Everybody knew what God had done in delivering the children of Israel, and they knew that it was God, and they knew that the God of the Bible was the power, powerful God, and that was proclaimed throughout the earth. So God can turn and transform evil, and he can use it for good. Here's one of those examples. We've seen that principle throughout Scripture. So we looked at that passage, and we ended in verse 18. So the conclusion then So then he has mercy on whom he desires. He has no obligation to express any mercy to anyone. All are sinners, beginning with Adam. But God is also not only a God of judgment and justice and holiness, but he's a God of grace, and he can bestow it freely and sovereignly upon whomever he so desires. We stress that aspect. We're going to stress that some more in this next paragraph. And then secondly, this is where we left off at the end. So let's expand it because this is a difficult problem, especially not only in relationship to the doctrine of election, but in this whole idea of how God deals with the unbeliever. But hopefully we've laid a foundation of God not being obligated to any sinner at any point in any time and particularly the time frame of the beginnings of the nation of Israel during the time of Moses. And he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens, that's a difficult idea, whom he desires. Now, I didn't mention it, but feel free to break in at any point and add insight or ask any questions or contribute in any way. I've kind of dominated this introduction here, but this is a difficult concept. The idea of God hardening some, choosing some, and even hardening others. He hardens whom he desires. So we need to take a look at this, and we need to kind of trace it back. We can look at the word. The word itself in the Hebrew has, in fact, I was surprised when I studied the Hebrew word there, It has more different senses than probably any other word that I've ever seen in Scripture. It's interesting. I didn't count the number of them, but uh, somewhere like it can have like 20 or 30 different senses besides this hardening idea. Now, certainly that I think is there, but the Hebrew word also has the idea of to stiffen Now, that's kind of a negative idea as well, or the idea of to become stubborn, but it has lots of other ideas as well. It has the idea of 
to uh, be strong. It even has the idea of to repair something in a positive sense. Now, I don't think that's the usage in this context, but it does have a positive sense. For example, the, the temple was, was damaged in 2 Kings 12, 5 through 8, and it talks about the priests, let them take it for themselves, each from his acquaintance, and they shall repair the damages of the house. And if you can read all the way through verse 8, it talks about, the word is used about four times there, the same word in the idea of repairing something. Now, I'm not... What is that word? Pardon me? What is the Hebrew word? The Hebrew word... Is that what your question? Yes. It's chazak. You have to pronounce it from deep into your chest there. Chazak. The Hebrew word chazak. Now, it occurs 288 times in the Old Testament with, like I said, a variety of different ways that it could be translated. And in fact, in New American Standard, it's translated in, in many ways. Has the idea even to take courage, kind of a positive idea, or to encourage. Now, I'm not saying that that's the meaning here. Remember, every context, you have to take a word in its context to understand its meaning. And I think it, this is not necessarily a bad translation. I just want you to be aware that it has this idea of even the idea of encouraging. In other words, God is kind of moving Pharaoh along a certain lines, even to the point of hardness, I think. Now, it is used in that sense, I think, throughout this passage. Also, you need to keep in mind there are other words that can be translated to be hardened that are used in the broader context of the book of Exodus when it's talking about Pharaoh. And we'll look at some of them in the next slide. So the first thing to note is the word harden here has a variety of senses. I'm not arguing with the translation. I think the translation is probably a good one. But it it is kind of the end product, if you will, of the usage of this word in terms of its extreme negative aspects. It has some softer meanings elsewhere. And that's all I'm pointing out. So let's talk a little bit about the progression. In other words, what's going on here in terms of God? Because on the surface here, it almost seems like, man, that doesn't seem fair. How can God take an unbeliever and still, in fact, this is the question that's going to be raised later on, how can God now hold Pharaoh responsible? How can he hold mankind responsible if, in fact, God is involved in the unbeliever to accomplish, in this case, hardening. So let's take a look at this, and we can go all the way back, not only the book of Exodus, but we'll go back to some passages also in uh, the book of Romans. I think Romans lays the foundation to what Paul is talking about here, the beginning of Romans, all the way back to chapter 1. Now, some of you have not been with us the whole time we've been in the book of Romans, and some of you don't probably remember. I was looking back, and we were looking at Romans 1 three years ago. So I'll have to remind you of some of the principles we developed there. But first of all, let's take a look, and some of you might jump in and read some of these passages. Does somebody want to look up Exodus, first of all, Exodus 4? And all the rest of these passages are in the book of Exodus. Let me kind of clue you into what I'm doing here. First of all, God announces or predicts what he's going to do. And if he announces and predicts what he's going to do, 
This only intensifies the idea, how can he hold the unbeliever responsible for his response? And by the way, I should also mention, we're not talking about justification here. We're not talking about the issue of eternal destinies here. We're talking about God responding to Israel as a corporate group and showing mercy to the children of God to fulfill promises. Remember, in fact, Jim McGillery pointed out last time, Israel, in terms of their national identity, they're a saved people. They're the children of God. And in the context, God is showing mercy to them. And yet in, it's in the context of their great sin and their violation of the, the covenant immediately after the covenant was given. But what I'm leading at here is God reveals ahead of time what he's going to do, showing his sovereign control over history. But God also reveals himself to every man. Remember, go back to Romans 1. There is none that has an excuse, none with an excuse. All have received a revelation. Now, I'm going to go back to Romans 1, so you might keep your finger in Romans and partly in uh, the book of Exodus as well. Does anybody have Exodus 4, 21? And would you mind reading that passage for us? I do. This is Linda. Go ahead, Linda. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. It's announced ahead of time. In other words, God is predicting to Moses, and remember, this is early. Moses isn't even back in Egypt. He's still in uh, Midian, but he's announcing very clearly what he's going to do. This is revelation, and the revelation is even specific in that the revelation is given to Pharaoh himself. Would somebody care to read uh, Exodus chapter 5 now? This is, Now, this moves further into the book. I'll read this. Okay. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Though they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Okay. Now, the point I'm making here is Pharaoh is receiving revelation. And the Romans 1 that we'll go to in a moment, the Romans 1 passage tells us that, in fact, we'll start in verse 18, that God has revealed himself and man is under wrath. And he's explaining why all of humanity is under wrath. Remember... 118, the wrath of God is revealed. And the whole point of that passage is that God has adequately revealed himself to all mankind. And the only point I'm making, we're not going to read all of these verses. In fact, we're going to move along just for the sake of time. But if you want to jot these down, you're going to see that Pharaoh received lots of revelation from God. Now, this is fundamental in understanding what's happening in terms of hardening of hearts. Pharaoh has had adequate revelation, adequate opportunity to respond positively or negatively. 
And you have some of the other verses, 716, 8-1, 8-20, 9-1, 9-13, 10-3. Throughout the whole process of the plagues, God has been revealing himself and speaking through Moses the word of God to Pharaoh. And notice also very early on, you have very clear passages that give indications the way that Pharaoh has responded to the revelation of God, and particularly uh, 7.14. Would somebody care to read that verse? 7.14. I've got it, Ray. Go ahead. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And since you're in chapter 7, you want to also read... Uh, that's Bill, right? Read yes. verse 22, since you're in chapter 7. 22. 7.22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Okay, a clear statement that he has rejected the revelation that God gave him. Now... It's- in 8.15 also, yeah. Yeah, correctly exactly. says, but when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Yep. And In other words, as God predicted, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So Pharaoh has already rejected the revelation of God. Now, God announces that he's going to be involved. So both are involved, not only Pharaoh, but the passage indicates that God is going to be involved as well. Now turn back. So go ahead. I just think it's interesting. And to your question, is it fair to the extent that two wills are involved and Pharaoh is choosing and he is not prevented from choosing by God? Absolutely. It's fair. And it's cool that uh, God is just and will be just period. The only indebtedness there is in the God-to-mankind relationship clearly is we are indebted to God. Absolutely. Because of our sin. And um, I think it's cool. I think there is a, a fairness that does come forward with regards to God's justice. Not that God is indebted, but because of his character that he will be faithful to himself. Exactly. And to the extent that mankind has a choice and that that choice also corresponds to an ability to choose that, that just goes and reinforces God's justice, which is paramount. Exactly. Exactly. And we've been commenting that the nature of depravity, if God does not intervene Remember, through the whole process of calling and convicting and illuminating, if God does not intervene, in other words, if he does not show mercy, that's the whole mercy summary there in verse 18, depravity is such that it will every time reject the revelation. Now, in Romans 1, now I'm going to read verse 18, and if you some of you want to pick up, let's read through the passage or part of it. This is the very beginning of the book of Romans where he's explaining that man is under condemnation. In fact, he says man is under wrath. 
And now he's going to explain, for the wrath of God is present tense. Remember, we made a big point of that. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He, in this passage, is going to explain, remember we, if you remember three years ago, we talked about the different ways that God displays wrath. He's done it in the past. He's going to do it in the future. There's going to be future wrath poured out. Here, he's talking about wrath in the present tense. And he's going to explain what he means by that when we get to verse 24. But before that, he's going to explain why man is under wrath. Somebody read 19 and 20. It starts with because. This is the reason man is under wrath. Who wants to read that? Well, I'll read it. Because that which is known about God is evident. In other words, man knows revelation. It's evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood. Remember, I made a big stress of all of the words there where we have the realization. In other words, man realizes this revelation or understands it, knows it. And if you remember, I'm using R to alliterate. I'm reminding you from three years ago. Some of you may not remember what you ate yesterday, like me. So mankind is aware. Pharaoh, in the book of Exodus, is aware of God's revelation. What what, where does that leave man at the end of verse 20? Clearly understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So verse 20 says mankind is responsible to the revelation that he has received from God. What does man do with it? Verse 21, for even though they knew God, in other words, the emphasis again, they have a an insight, a realization, a knowledge, an awareness of revelation even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations. That's where I get the idea of not only their rejection, the rejecting of God's word, but not only did they reject it, but now they rationalize it and become speculative. In other words, they come up with futile ideas, speculations, and that affects their heart. And we have the beginning of reprobation, not only verse 20, the end of 21, but uh, verse 22. When mankind in his depravity rejects God's revelation, that heart begins the process of hardening. And that's what we have here in, in the Exodus story. The foolish heart is darkened, the end of verse 21. And they professed to be wise, they became fools. In other words, everything gets twisted, everything gets distorted. We don't have a clear picture of what is reality. We fall for sin, and we lose sight of God and and what God has. And then what happens after that? Verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What was the number one characteristic of the Egyptian gods? And in fact, Pharaoh was one of them. He viewed himself as one of the gods. We have idolatry. So we have replacement of the one true God. 
You see all of that? See the progress here? Now, the book of Exodus doesn't go through this sequence, but Paul has already laid this out in the book of Romans so that when we get to chapter 9 and verse 18, and it says that God hardens whom he desires, you have to understand what it says in the book of Exodus. God predicts what's going to happen. God reveals himself adequately to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. In fact, the plagues were part of that revelation. But Pharaoh had the very words from Moses of God's revelation. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And what happened? What happens? We have the sequence in Romans 1. And that is the reason that we have another R sounding word. And that's 24 through 32, where wrath is poured out in the present tense sense. Verse 24, therefore God gave them, you could even translate it, gave them up. And you might say that God gives people over to their own choices. And those choices manifest themselves in further sin. And if you read the passage, even ending in some of the most perverse things, this is one of the homosexual passages that deals with it, but other perversity, other sin, and more hardening. Hardening is an expression of wrath in the sense that God lets man go fully into his depravity and in some cases leading even to addictions that we have, I think, illustrated in the passage. So we have that explanation from Romans. And now we have other passages where, for example, 7.13 and 14, 7.22, we won't look these up, but it speaks uh, Pharaoh and the verbs are more in the passive sense. And what I mean by that, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and it's not clear whether Pharaoh is doing the hardening or something outside of Pharaoh is doing the hardening almost transitioning to some of these clear passages that refer to God hardening. And I think what is going on in the passage is that God, this is an example of Romans 1, of God abandoning and letting the depravity of man run its course, letting the depravity of Pharaoh running its course. And you could even view it as God actively involved in the wrath This is an example of the pouring out of wrath in the case of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, such that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Does that make sense? I think that's you have to understand a little bit of that background to understand what's going on in the passage that says that he has mercy on whom he desires. In other words, those that are chosen, he will, in fact, work to convict And if you remember, even in the book of Exodus, we have the sacrifices where God restores the children of Israel, showing mercy and grace and compassion and love, and he hardens whom he desires. It's not that Pharaoh was created such that God prevented him from responding rightly, but Pharaoh had already responded on the basis of his depravity, God simply allowed it, and it produced hardness within him in such a way that he worked out that depravity 
that is illustrated in the book of Exodus. Any comments on that? So then, so then Ray, we could see the reverse of that in, uh, the, um, prostitute in the city, uh, of Jericho. Jericho, who, uh, gave aid and protected the spies. We also see the reversing of that in God's selection of Ruth. Ruth could have stayed in Moab and probably found a very nice husband there, but she went with uh, Naomi yes. back to Israel. And then we have other expressions where people who had no part of God, and we are one of those two then, yes. that God could have left us in our depravity and in our hardness, but he has reached out to us and shown mercy and grace that was definitely undeserved. That's the point that I think the passage is making in relationship to Israel, but I think some of these principles would uh, also carry over in terms of God's choosing of us as well. At least that's the viewpoint that I'm I'm taking. So I see those that God has chosen in eternity past, and, and now I'm talking in terms of church age election, expanding on what you're saying, basically, I'm agreeing with what you're saying, apart from God choosing and apart from God intervening in time, in our experience, depravity is such that it will carry itself through. It will reject that revelation that we have in the general revelation in nature that we have in Romans 1. And we will rationalize it away. And it'll have an effect of hardening upon us. And it will become more and more hardened within us. And the only thing that prevents that is God intervening to convict of sin, to illuminate that there's no other other option except Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, and uh, continue the process until to the point of us believing in him, and then he justifies. So, yes, I agree 100%. So now he's going to raise, any other comments there? There's lots that we talked about. I think we have in Pharaoh just an example kind of an extreme example of one individual that had an impact on a whole kingdom, you might say, that God uses to illustrate this idea of the hardening, and God is involved in it. Not that he is blocking or preventing Pharaoh from responding rightly, but he's even, you might even say, hardening in the sense of encouraging and allowing that depravity to run its course it's evidence that he that pharaoh is under the wrath of god pharaoh is is not one of the chosen obviously and he's using these examples from israel's history because he's addressing this jewish audience in the city of rome well we don't have time to get too far into verses 19 through 29, but let me introduce it and then we'll give our full attention to it next week. I just thought it was worthy because this passage is difficult to try to clarify what's going on here because on the surface it almost seems like, well, that, that, that doesn't sound fair. If we, if it didn't sound fair beginning in verse 14, it really doesn't sound fair now. It almost seems like how can God hold anybody responsible for any sin 
much less Pharaoh, and he's going to deal with that problem of human responsibility beginning in verse 19. So let's introduce it, and then uh, that's a good place for us to stop. So beginning in verse 19 through uh, basically the end of this subdivision, verse 29, he's going to talk about the sovereignty of God is now going to be vindicated. He's vindicated the word of God in that within the Abrahamic covenant, even going back to the Abrahamic covenant in the time of Abraham, God made selections. God chose some over others. So God is perfectly just to do the same in the first century. And this introduced the idea that doesn't sound fair, that doesn't sound just. So he defends the justice of God. And in a sense, he's going to continue defending the justice of God, but he's going to kind of introduce kind of a new, or not a new, but a related concept. God is perfectly sovereign in anything that he does. And that's basically the vindication that we have in verses 19 through 20. So he raises another issue, another main issue. If God hardens Pharaoh, how can he hold man responsible? How can he hold Pharaoh responsible and how can he hold any man responsible for any sin? So he's going to answer that issue in verse 19. And it might have been an issue that he dealt with with uh, people in other places and maybe other Jewish believers may have raised this to him. And he knows that this is a thought that we will have. When you see that, it just doesn't seem right. So he's going to expand upon it. And he's going to expand upon it in an interesting way that it's going to take a little time to explain as well. So he says, you will say to me then, in other words, you might object, you might have a question here. Why does he still find fault? How can he hold Pharaoh responsible? What about human responsibility? Obviously, there's a problem, there's an issue here. Now, let me give you an overview of his argument here and the way he's going to argue, and then we'll look, come back and look at some, some of the details. We'll have to do that next week. Let me just kind of give you the, the, the sense of the argument here. So we, first of all, we have an objection, and the objection centers on human responsibility. That's at the beginning of verse 19. I didn't read the last phrase. For who resists his will, in verse 19, another objection from the God side, if God is in control, if God is sovereign and God hardens and God is working in such a way, you know, this just doesn't seem right. So he, we have six questions here. Two of them are questions raised as an objection. So in verse 19, we have the objection and then beginning in verse 20, he's going to begin refuting the objection with a series of four further questions. And the implications of the answers to these questions are going to refute this objection. And uh, he's going to start with mankind has no right to even question anything that God has. And God is God And there's several things that we can bring out as a result of what he brings out there. In fact, if you want to look at verse 20, let me quickly read it. I have it further on into the slides. On the contrary, so he starts off almost with words of refutation right off the bat. On the contrary, who are you, 
oh man who answers back to God. In other words, you have no right to even question God. Now, he doesn't have to answer it, and he's going to even reinforce that with the idea the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this way? In other words, the the creation cannot answer back. You're just like dirt. You're part of the creation. There's a distinction between the creator and the creation that leaves the creation with no rights to question what the creator is doing. The thing molded can't respond to the creator. So he's going to emphasize this sharp distinction between the creator and the creation. But he he doesn't stop there. He could stop there and say, we're done. I mean, that's it. I don't have to give an answer. God doesn't require an answer. But he does give a further refutation. He says there's no right to make give it to give an answer, but he in fact does answer it in uh, verse 21, and he gives an illustration of the sovereignty of, of the potter in order to create the idea that God is absolutely sovereign, and whatever he does is by definition just. Whatever he does is by definition right, and he has perfect rights to do whatever he so desires with the creation that he created. Does not the potter have a right over the clay or authority is the word that is used there to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? In other words, God has perfectly right to do whatever he wants with whatever he has created. And if that's not enough, the illustration of the potter He's going to carry that over in verse 22, and he's going to ask another question. So verse 21 is phrased as a question, and verse 22 is another question, the sixth one. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Wow, that's another very difficult passage that we'll have to spend some time on. So I'm just kind of laying out here kind of the argument that is before us. We have two questions phrased in terms of uh, one idea, the responsibility, human responsibility of man from man's perspective and also from God's perspective, who can resist his will. And then we have four questions that are actually an answer to the first two, and they're phrased as questions implying the ideas that I lay out along with the uh, refutation there. No right to question, an answer relating to creator-creation distinctions, and an answer relating to an illustration of sovereignty of a potter as an illustration, carrying over to a question relating to the sovereignty of God. God is absolutely sovereign. So we'll pick up beginning in, well, we'll start with verse 19, And then in verse 20, he's going to talk about the sovereignty of a potter, 20 and 21. And then we'll work our way as far as we can get next week. Any further comments or questions before we have a closing word here? Does this make sense? Do we answer the issue adequately of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart there? Does that make sense? Yes. Makes sense to Linda only. (laughs) <laughs> it comes back to some of the things we've talked about earlier. It's both and. It's both Pharaoh hardening his heart and God hardening his heart. Absolutely. And there's a, there is a tension there, as we've said before, absolutely. But you can't 
remove either one of them. Very good. Very good. The working out of the depravity to me also shows um, the election in the story of Noah and how all the people around him, the working out of their depravity led to their destruction. Yes. Yeah. And you could see that in any unbeliever at any point in any passage, Old Testament, New Testament. And you see this concept of election as well. Noah and his family, uh, you know, Noah and his family, they were sinners as well. But God showed mercy upon whom he would show mercy. He showed compassion on whom he chose, I would say, to show compassion. Kind of a concluding thought before somebody prepares to close in prayer for us. Somebody want to do that for us? Closing thought, God is sovereign in choosing any sinner, even Gentiles. I think that's the thrust of Romans 9 through 11. Even us dogs, God is sovereign in choosing. Who wants to close for us? Father God, we're just really grateful that you have gone to so much trouble to reveal how you think, to reveal what matters, and to show us that you are justified in all you do. And Father, clearly your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts above our thoughts and your ways above our ways. And we see that illustrated so clearly in Romans and Exodus. Thank you for choosing to invite us to join you to to come to embrace Christ as our own. We're so grateful for you choosing to do that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Wonderful prayer. Any other comments before we take our uh, six-day break? No troubles, no problems, no issues. Okay, any uh, last Happy Mother's Day comments or things that anyone want to wish here before we close? 